July 30th, 2023. This morning I'd like to continue the series. It's, we're up to the seventh installment, The Truths of Halakha. If you missed the first six, first six rest assured you're okay. Uh, we'll quickly uh, get into the topic, into the issue, and you'll understand uh, how this topic can and will match several uh, topics uh, specifically in classes as we uh, have gone along and will continue to go along. Uh, for example, just in the past class on the truths of halacha, maybe two, three weeks ago, what we talked about, you might recall this class, was that we talked about the wine and the status of wine when it's diluted and how the poske halacha struggle with the reality which apparently once was. Uh, we did some uh, verification, some research on this. It appears as if you won't find today kosher wine which is diluted to the extent that Svaradim would have an issue with it. But even at a time during which there was that potential, nonetheless, as we discussed, there were and is a direction in halakha that a person who's making kiddush on that wine, which for them is considered wine, in the class we were referring to Ashkenazim, can be motzi, can fulfill the mitzvah of kiddush on the wine for a svaradi who might and will be saying in that circumstance, this is not considered wine for me. That's a fascinating reality. So when we refer to these truths of halakha, what we're really searching for and seeking in the midst of these conversations are those paradoxical situations where you find a contradiction of sorts and then realize that the system of halakha is governed by different sorts of principles, even when there are seemingly or directly contradictory realities when we understand that we can understand in some way or another and fathom these truths of halakha, we already opened our eyes to the system of halakha and understood it at a greater depth. So this specific class, I'd begin with these first two sources. One is from Ramban Nahmani, and the second is from Maharal. Ramban Nahmani wrote an essay called Mishpat Herim, and Maharal, the second source, is from a book called Be'er HaGola. And in each of them, they make an almost identical point. Uh, they develop it a bit differently. They are uh, separated by several hundred years, and lived in very different uh, milieu and uh, atmospheres. Uh, but nonetheless, the point is identical in my mind with regards to what they seek to get across. And that is the followers following. If you take a look at source number one, Ramban writes, Vani Omer lahar bakashat He says, I'm careful, I'm saying this with trepidation. Shezehu describes Something about a harem. Well, a harem is a ban of sorts. And the Pasuk says if a person has something having to do with a harem, something which was banned and it wasn't redeemed, he shall surely die. Now, what's that Pasuk referring to? How would you translate that Pasuk? Says Ramban, the true translation of the Pasuk is along the lines of what we find in Sefer Yehoshua by an individual whose name was Achan. In Yehoshua, there was a ban from benefiting from uh, the conquering of Yericho, anything that was going to be conquered in Yericho, any of the material um, gains that Am Yisrael would have at that time were going to be dedicated to the Mishkan. There is a harem, an absolute ban from benefiting from it, and nonetheless, this individual, Achan, goes ahead and does benefit, and in turn, he's put to death for doing so. Well, says Ramban, Kelomar mashiskimu alav hakol, Says Ramban, 
חוסם פינו בזה מפני שרבותינו זה אל דרשו המקרא הזה לעניין אחר. He says, don't be confused by the derashot of the rabbis. That's already very interesting. What's he referring to? He says, the rabbis have different interpretations to this pasuk. He cites two different interpretations that the hachamim and the gemara have. Number one from a gemara in Arachin, and number two from a gemara in Masechet Ketubot. The first one is, If a person, you see, the Torah has a whole chapter, a whole passage on when people evaluate or state that they'll donate their own value to the Mishkan, to the Mikdash. And they say, We have a Masechet called Masechet Arachin. If I say my value will be dedicated, as a result, I need to pay it. What if, I'm on my way, I'm on death row, I'm on my way to being killed, and I say, In such a circumstance, do I need to pay or not? Am I considered a dead man walking who has no value, or alternatively, do I pay? The rabbis attribute the understanding of that halakha to this pasuk. That's how they translate this pasuk. This is a circumstance where there's no monetary value to the person who's on his way to death. Now it stretches, it tweaks the words a bit. Second interpretation the rabbis have in Masechet Ketubot is in a circumstance where a person is hayav mitah, they've been, they violated, they did something prohibited, and as a result, they're supposed to be put to death. What if they want to ransom their death? What if they want to pay instead of getting put to death? Say the rabbis pointing to this pasuk, can't do so. Now you understand those are two alternative readings to a verse, to a pasuk, which on its most basic level is not read as such. Its most basic level is the way that Yehoshua executes this with Achan. And yet the rabbis have two different interpretations. What Ramban is dealing with, and it's really what I'd like to get into together with you today, is situations where we have what we'll call peshat, what does seem to be the most base level interpretation of the pasuk, where the hachamim have altogether different interpretations. And there's a twofold question here. Number one, how do we appreciate their different interpretations? Are they binding on a biblical level, which has major ramifications? And number two, what happened to the simple interpretation? Is it discarded in the face of the exegesis of the interpretation of the hachamim? That's one example of Ramban. Ramban continues. He says, you know, the pasuk says, lo yumtu abot albanim. The Pasuk says that children should not be killed with their fathers and fathers not with their sons. Now the simple interpretation of the Pasuk is, and Ramban cites this from Pesukim in Melachim Bet, Perek Yodalid, where it was Amatzia, if I'm not mistaken, who goes after those who assassinated his father, Yoash, and says, I'm only killing the assassins but not the children. Simple interpretation of the Pasuk. You die for your wrongdoing, not your children. You die for your wrongdoing, not your parents. That's the simple interpretation. And yet, says Ramban, the rabbis interpret this differently. The rabbinic interpretation is that children can't testify about their parents and parents can't testify about their children. Says Ramban, are they both true? Proves Ramban from Melachim Bet, they're both true. How do we square this? How do we, at the, at the same time, accept there's a base level reading of the text which is binding biblically, and at the same time, there's an ex- interpretation, an extrapolation of the rabbis, which at the same time has, in their mind, in our collective acceptance, 
of biblical validity and status. Ramban gives a certain interpretation to this. He says, um, at the, uh, in, in the middle of this statement over here, he says, uh, says, how can I uh, understand this? Uh, well, first and foremost, take a look at the end. His last words are, Halamadnu shekama panim shel emet la Torah. There are several faces of truth to the Torah. A fascinating statement. The statement of Ramban Nahmani is, if you're looking and seeking to find truth in the Torah, strike that word truth and add to it an S, truths. There are several faces of truth to the Torah. That's his statement. And in turn, he will, it seems, accept the simple interpretation as binding biblically as well as the rabbinic interpretation as well. Now, this approach, this uh, statement of Ramban, is, as I said, echoed by Maharal and many others. At the end of the first paragraph here in source number one, he furthermore cites a pasuk, which the Hachamim oftentimes cite. It happens to be Harambam, I know Ezra would tell me, uh, cites it in the famous passage in Morin Bukhim where he talks about Ma'amad Har Sinai, what we heard or didn't hear. Pasuk is Ahat Diber Elohim Shetaim Zo Shamaati. The Pasuk says, God spoke one, but I heard two. Of course, not simple exactly what that means, but at the very least, says Ramban, this Pasuk tells us that, or this reference in the Kitubim tells us, I can hear one statement and nonetheless accept because it's the words of God, because it's a, a prophetically inspired or directly transmitted message, several interpretations, all of which are truthful. Now again, it seems a little theoretical at this moment, Give a few moments to develop. First and foremost, uh, the second point I want to make is along the same lines, Maharal, Maharal, who is more prone to this sort of mystical thought, this embrace of, of paradoxical truths, of contradictory axioms, both of which can be existent on a truthful plane and level. He has this statement, says, Dine divrei hachamim, in source number two, in the Be'er HaShelishi, divrei hachamim hem lefi hadikduk, vehem devarim niglim shehe'emiku mo'od ledi he says, if you look at the words of the rabbis, in most circumstances, what you're going to find is a depth of interpretation on the pasuk. He says, they'll be finding a certain depth to the pasuk, to what's being said in the Torah, but its simple interpretation, again, defined accordingly, stands strong. He says the Hachamim say in several places, uh, he cites from the second chapter of Yevamot, a pasuk, even if we interpret it differently, even if we truthfully, quote unquote, interpret it differently, its simple interpretation stands as well. We don't uproot the peshat in place of the derash. We don't do away with the derash in place of the peshat. We accept both as binding and truthful. In this difficult passage, says Maharal, what's it similar to? It's to a tree, he says. The tree has roots in the ground. We might refer to that as the peshat in the pasuk. But then it has the branches and leaves which blossom from it. That's the derashot. Aren't they all a part of the same tree? Don't they all form and fashion one entity? They do. 
even though they appear to be different, they're nonetheless all building one single structure, neither of which is contradicting the other. That being the case, I'd like to, over the course of this class now, bring one case study to discuss and to develop together with you. Yes, Ezra. In terms of the old Investment Khamim, we're always associated with that with the Rabbanah. Obviously, here, some said about the Rabbanah. He's referring to the Rashot de Oraita. Right. We never saw that whole Jews that way. At least I didn't. Why mention it on the, on the Peshat or the simple and then more of the rabbinic you know, extrapolation, instead of saying something more towards like, this is the general, the general, and then there's the personal interpretation of every person. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example, because my father taught it to me. For instance, you know, you say, my daughter is the most beautiful girl in the whole world. She may not be the most beautiful girl in the whole world, but to me, she's the most beautiful girl in the whole world. So, we're always looking at it as like Peshat, but not as personal, like as a general statement and as a personal statement. I, I can understand your claim. I could, I don't know. I have to think about it more. I can understand it in the initial stages of interpretation. As, and I know you might bemoan it or something along those lines, as Torah or Halakha has been formalized, difficult to make that claim now and to rationalize it. Now, it's, they don't want to give the people, like, the people that much power? Or? I don't know. But what I can tell you is once we now have a formalized system where I'm going to find in a moment one pasuk which is interpreted in five, maybe six ways, in addition to a peshat, all of which you'll find in Mishneh Torah, Harambam, and Shohan Aruch, it's there where I'm not sure that uh, where your where your initial you know, entry level description uh, still necessarily stands, and so for that I, I turn to a pasuk at the end of uh, Parashat Kedoshim or in Parashat Kedoshim rather in source number three. Vayikra perek yotet pasuk kafav pasuk says lo tochlu al hadam lo tenachashu velo teonenu. So pasuk says don't eat on the blood, don't commit witchcraft, don't be involved in sorcery. Again, don't eat on the blood. I'm leaving that purposefully enigmatic and cryptic. Don't be involved in or commit witchcraft or sorcery. That's how I'm, for the moment, translating What does it mean not to eat on the blood? Well, if we're reading the pasuk as we perhaps should be, contextually, it has something to do with witchcraft and sorcery. Pasuk again says, don't eat on the blood, don't commit witchcraft or sorcery. That would be the simplest interpretation. Rashbam, in his commentary to the Torah, says, read this matter and understand it based on its context. It's a reference to some act of witchcraft, sorcery, ways of pagan idolater rites, uh, the Avodah Zarah ways. That's the most, Ramban Nachmani was very often given to Kabbalistic mystical interpretations on this matter as well. Attributes of this part of Pasuk of Lotochlu al-Hadam and its simple interpretation as referring to some ancient Avodah Zarah ritual having to do with eating blood. Harambam in his Morenu Vuchim and Chilekim al-Perek Memvav likewise describes at a greater length and perhaps with a greater depth of knowledge through reading the books of ancient Avodah Zarah rites and rituals describes how once upon a time pagan rituals dictated that 
through the eating of blood, through the engagement with blood, slaughtering and having the blood sometimes out on the ground in the midst of some ritual uh, sectarian uh, uh, practice, uh, there would be a vision that you could get connected to shedim, to demons and spirits, whether while awake or while sleeping. Lotochlu al hadam, in turn, Harambam says, is a reference to that. Ramban Nachmani as well, something along those lines. Some ancient ritualistic, dare I say it, nonsense of Avodah Zarah, that's Lotochlu al Hadam. That's the description, that's the interpretation. Would that potentially have ramifications for me and you with regards to even our practice? It might in a very static fashion, let me explain. Whereas the Pasuk doesn't say per se, don't do the witchcraft of Achilal Hadam, it says don't eat with blood, we might say that if you slaughtered and the blood is now resting on the ground, that might pose a problem. Even if you didn't go ahead afterwards and commit the idolatry, very often the practices in and of themselves were problematic. So what we might, in a Peshat orientation, reading this Pasuk say, Lotochlu al-Hadam dictates that even today when you and I know nothing, I imagine, I never know about you, Gabby. You know nothing about witchcraft or sorcery. We can't slaughter and just have the blood collect on the ground in some sort of basin or in some sort of other fashion. That, I think, would be a simple interpretation of the Pasuk. And yet, Harambam seems to describe it as such. And yet, the Gemara, well known in Masechet Sanhedrin, in source number five on Dafsamech Gimal, lists a good amount of interpretations to this Pasuk, none of them ostensibly having anything to do with witchcraft or sorcery. Buckle up. Detanya, minayin leochil mina behema kotem shetetze nafsha shehu belota ase. How do you know that if you eat from an animal, it's a state of being that the rabbis refer to as mefarkeset. It's before the animal is fully deceased, fully dead, and you slaughtered it, it's still shaking. We imagine there's still some life streaming through it, and you're already consuming from it. How do you know that's a violation? Lotochlu al hadam. Don't eat while there's still blood, which we imagine as life. Hadam through in that animal. First violation. This is a mitzvah lo ta'aseh. Nifsak in shohanaruch in Harambam's Mishneh Torah. You must wait until the animal is completely dead before consuming, even though you slaughtered it. First interpretation of lo tochlu al-hadam. Second interpretation. Davar aher. Second line over here. Lo tochlu al-hadam. What's up, Ron? He was a butcher. He was a shohet. Uh-huh. I imagine he was scrupulous about this one. I was like, so you slaughter it. You wait until it's fully not mefarkesed. I, I don't know that chickens are uh, all, all that much mefarkesed, but nine hundred. That's that's an amazing thing. All right. Anyway, davar This is your father-in-law, really? And in America, he did so. Davar aher lo tochlu al adam lo tochlu basar. You don't have any kohanim in the family, do you? Because this next one, I would tell you, you'd be thinking about them. Lo tochlu basar ve'adain dam b'mizrak. Kohanim, who are allowed to eat from certain portions of the animal, truth is, by Yisraelim, this might be applicable as well, you can't consume from that animal which is brought as a part of a sacrifice in the Mikdash, but you'd be eating from it before you did what's called zirikat adam. If the blood is still in the, in the bowl, which needs to be brought to the altar, to the Mizbeach, and sprinkled, you can't yet eat from the meat. Second mitzvah lo Would you know it? It's in Harambam's Mishneh Torah. As as well, a biblically binding mitzvah lo Where is it derived from? Lo tochlu al-hadam. 
Third one, Rabbi Dosa Omer, Minan she'en mavrina al haruge betin. It's part of life, unfortunately, death. When people have a fa- close family member who passes away and you return back from burial, you're given what's called seudat havra'a. You're, you're handed a meal by others who prepared it for you. It's part of the tanhume avelim. It's part of consoling those who are mourning. The halakha is if the person who was deceased, who passed away, was put to death by capital punishment. He violated one of the mitzvot lo that he needs to be killed for, and he was, and the family in turn saw or heard about the death of their close family member. They don't get that se'udat tavra. How do you know so? Lo tochlu, the eating, that meal, al hadam, you're not eating, when it was a capital punishment damim situation. Third rabbinic interpretation to this. Harambam again, in his Mishneh Torah, is posek lahalakha on a biblical level. This law, you do not give se'udat havra'ah to haruge betin. Number four, Rabbi Akiva Omer, minayin l'sanhedrin shaharigu et ha-nefesh she'en to'amim kelum kolota hayom. How do you know that when the Supreme Jewish Court, the Sanhedrin, were dealing with a case or made a judgment on a case of capital punishment, someone who's hayav mita, that they need to fast that day. Would you know it? Lo tochlu al hadam, when you're dealing with someone else's blood, their life, there's no eating. Until today, there is questions in piske dinim, in dayanim situations. It might not be dine nefashot per se, what's permitted, what's not permitted in terms of eating, but that's a halakha as well. Nifsak la halakha in Shuhan Aruch, in Harambam. What's that? They all, not only is it a Deoraita according to them, the Gemara calls it a Lav Shebichlalot. The Gemara says these are all Deoraita. I'll describe Lav Shebichlalot in a moment. This is a startling Gemara, as I've quoted you once or twice this Gemara in the past when we have our conversations about these sorts of matters. Lastly, how do you know Azharal ben Soreru More Minayin? You see, there's something called, it's described in Parashat Kitese, a ben Soreru More a wayward and rebellious child. And the Torah describes it as an individual, a child who's eating gluttonously and drinking glu- uh, 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 hedonistically and going against his parents' will. And there are specific and particular rabbinic understands his interpretations to it. He gets put to death. Now, whenever we have a death penalty in the Torah, which is described over there, the hachamim always say, en onchin ken mazhirin. There needs to be a warning as well. There's no warning. There's no separate statement. Don't do this. You see, when it comes, for example, to the forbidden uh, relations, at the end of Parashat Harimot, the Torah has a long list. No relations with X, Y, Z, A, B, C. None of these women, none of these men can have relations. Parashat Kedoshim says, if you were to do so, you get put to death. We have an Onish and we have an Azhara. Ben Sorero More only has as an onish, only as a punishment. How do you have azhara? Tamud Omar, lotochlu al hadam. He's eating. He's uh, eating lotochlu al hadam. It's an inappropriate eating of some sort. Five interpretations in the Gemara, all of which are accepted as binding biblically. The Gemara, in fact, says you don't get lashes for any of these because it's what's called a lav shebichlalot. It's some all-encompassing mitzvah lo ta'aseh, which has a lot of branches out of it. As a result, there's no lashes. That's a principle which is very hard to, to, to explain. Why wouldn't you get lashes? Because there's many derivatives to one law. But regardless, that notwithstanding, these are all biblically binding. What about slaughtering 
and leaving the blood on the ground. Is that never mentioned in the Gemara? Is it taken for granted? But wait, there's a bit more as well. Because the Gemara in Masech Berachot and Daf Yod Bet has yet another, a sixth interpretation of this Pasuk. My Dichti, first line, Lo Tochlu Al Adam, Lo Tochelu Kodem Shetitpalelu Al Dimchen. Don't eat before you pray for your blood, for your life. It's a prohibition of eating before prayer. Biblical or rabbinic in nature? Is this what we call asmachta, Ezra? Or is this a mitzvah, lota aseh from the Torah? Of course it makes a presumption, presumption, but you'd be happy with that. That tefillah is min ha-Torah. But if tefillah, like harambam is, posek lahalacha, is a mitzvah that is biblically binding, is it prohibited to eat before tefillah min ha-Torah? How do we interpret this uh, prohibition. This is a tremendous debate. We'll go through it very briefly, but I will tell you the majority view is, ironically, in the medieval commentators and poskei halacha, that it's a biblical prohibition to eat before eating derived from this pasuk. That's, a, in my mind, a fascinating thing has just emerged. We found many interpretations to one pasuk, none of them even coming close, at least in my mind, to the simple interpretation of the pasuk. All of them historically, traditionally binding with regards to, this is a biblical violation. Not getting lashes because of a technicality. This last one for me is the most interesting. I'll tell you why for me it's the most interesting. Because whereas the first five, we might argue, whenever we have a derasha in the, in the Gemara, there's always a question that needs to be asked. Was this a tradition the rabbis had and they're just pinpoint, they're just pointing to a pasuk? In other words, this was really some sort of tradition all the way back. And that's why it's binding. They're just pointing to a pasuk. You might make that argument on each of the cases in source number five. This number six doesn't seem that way. This number six is already a further stretch. It's already, according to many, prayer is not biblical. So it means the derasha certainly for them is not biblical. It's already a different type of derasha. And yet, those who interpret number six as biblically binding, as a mitzvah lo ta'aseh min ha-Torah, to eat prior to prayer, are accepting that so distant from the peshat of the pasuk, so to speak, the spirit of the law, the binding nature of the halacha is such that lo tochlu al-adam can and should be interpreted in a plethora, a multitude of ways. In my mind, that again is touching on, pointing us to the very nature of the truths of halacha. That's what we've arrived at yet again. Yes, Ezra. It's a very fast one. It was really to our time that he lived it. No one will allow you to test anything. Mm. And mm. nobody is... Okay, well, hang tight on that one. I gotcha. Says it's Ezra, if... This is where we derive that from. It's in Shohan Aruch and Siman Petet. Lo tochlu al-hadam. Now, if I argue, as Ezra is right now, if we argue, as Ezra is right now, that it's only rabbinic in nature, okay, so that's not what the pasuk meant per se. The rabbis point to that. If we're arguing it's biblical, if it's minat Torah, that's, a whole, that's, that's how they're interpreting that pasuk. Ezra says you shouldn't have any leniencies if it's minat Torah, which is an interesting claim as well. But you're not praying for your life. Are you praying for your life every morning? That's the way they're interpreting it. That's, the, uh, that's their statement. 
Now, in terms of why we have leniencies, is from the very next words in the Gemara. The Gemara says, And they read the word gavecha, not as your back, but geecha, your pride, is only in prideful circumstances. They're, so to speak, interpreting what that initial statement and prohibition was really all about. So your, your claim that you wouldn't have the leniency, well, the rabbis are already mitigating for those circumstances. But, uh, you know, the, the, the claim then, and if we take this last one, this source number six, the Gemara Masech Berachot, that seriously really points to a very severe and, and major issue over here with regards to the truths of halacha. We're dealing with a pasuk, which as we introduced it, is really in the context of nothing having to do with prayer or a bedin or a ben sorero morero, anything of that sort. It has to do with witchcraft and sorcery, and yet we're understanding not rabbinically per se, biblically, directly, forcefully, explicitly, from the Torah, so to speak, if I were to knock on God's door and say, what do you think about this? The rabbis are telling us, he would say, absolutely, that's prohibited in my book. That's a fascinating thing. That's pointing to a truths of halakha. It's, Ezra, I've been waiting for this class for a while for this sort of proof with you because what you've told me, and, and you're right very often, is that a lot of these sorts of conversations are the rabbis making it based on their interpretation. Here, at the very least, they're explicitly telling you we believe and we are accepting this as binding min Torah. That's very severe. That's a real deal. To the extent that, again, harambam, in source number seven, in two places, both in his Shoresh Tet, that's his introduction to Sefer HaMitzvot, where he gives you the principles of how he's going to address what goes into the count of 613 mitzvot, as well as in his Perusha Mishnayot, Peregimah of Masechet Makot, says explicitly, there's a lot of biblical violations that all get subsumed under Lo Tochlu Al Hadam. He quotes that Gemara from source number five. Are these three different mitzvot? Lo Tochlu Al Hadam, Lo those are three separate different ones. Lo tochlu al hadam, however, they stand on their own. Lo tochlu al hadam, however, is lo tochlu al hadam, lo tochlu al hadam, lo tochlu al hadam, lo tochlu al hadam. There's a whole list of interpretations to what the lo tochlu al hadam means, and there. Nothing to do, and that is the crux to a certain extent of our issue. Because the simple interpretation of the Pasuk, as Harambam told us, as Ramban, etc., said, has to do with witchcraft. And yet, we're severing it from its context from its simple interpretation, A, and B, suggesting five slash six different interpretations, and C, accepting all of them, and binding on a biblical level. Because it seems to be like the other two are very, you know, they're very clear. I mean, and the first one is it, cryptic so, and open so I, th- I think... And maybe they couldn't find and, anything... And maybe I'm putting words into Gabby's mouth, but what I'm... It should, but I think what Gabby's find, arguing is... Alternatively, that's an interesting point, but alternatively, really alternatively, there are places... We, we did a class once or twice on this called uh, the Torah was handed over to them or something like that. Nimsar hakatuv lahachamim. The statements, I'm not going to get into the particulars at the moment. I'll tell you, you know, Melachan Cholamoed is brought up in this context. The Inuyim on Kippur, there's Ran, and there's different Mifashim who address this sort of matter. Um, and the idea, it's mentioned once or twice in the Gemara, the vision of, the, of, of many of the interpreters goes as follows that, and I think this is maybe what Gabby's touching on, is that from time to 
time when the rabbis, when the scholars were picking up on anomalies or on vagities and mentioned in the pasuk, why did the pasuk articulate it like such? They understood that so to speak as God's winking the eye and saying, you give the interpretation, I'm going to give the stamp of approval. It's calling, uh, it, it's calling for an interpretation. So the fact that it says it as such, the only difficulty, again, is that I'll have to accept, Gabby, that they, you know, that this wasn't clear to them or that it never was clear. Because again, if it was, as Harambam says, clear to anyone who read this at the time, as it was given to us, it's a fascinating thing that the Hachamim then, in a binding system... They couldn't find, they couldn't find a direct Avodazara practice right. at that particular time, so they, they needed to come... The yes, that's... Yeah. So you're helping one of the derashot of the hakamim, but the general, the broad, but you're ignoring the broader issue. Broader issue. The broader issue here is not per se which one's right or which one's right. It's that we're accepting all's right, and we're accepting them all's right while ignoring context. That's an amazing thing, and accepting potentially context as well. Shohan Aruch in source number 8 in his Bet Yosef cites the following from Mahari Abu Habr, Bitzhak Abu Habr. Uh, he, he says, um, he has, well, let's read it a little bit. It says, Katav Rabbeinu Hagadol Mahari Abu Habr, Demishum Hache, Shinu HaPasuk, Ve'amru Atikre Gavecha, Mepnei Sheim Ayinu Tofsim HaPasuk, Kimo Shehu, Haya Asur Lishtot Maim, Sharei Tzorech HaGufen, Ve'ashtat Dekarinan Ge'echa, Makom Gavecha, Kivan She'en Maim Ga'ava, Sharei Vechen Mishma, Bemashma, Bedvrei Hagaod Maimoniot, Ve'nera Li Sh'atam Sh'aya Koh, so let me summarize what he said for you as I just read it very quickly. What he said is, what the Gemara went on to in the lines that we read earlier explain was, you see, the Gemara initially cited don't eat before you pray for your life. And then the Gemara says, by the way, you know, that's what the Pasuk means in Sefer Melachim, you threw me behind your back. Instead of reading it as your back, Gavecha, it's Geecha, your pride. Why do you have that extra Pasuk? You told me, and I'll let it eat before prayer. Says Mahari Abu Hab, which Beit Yosef cites, it's coming to qualify that initial Pasuk. The initial Pasuk says, don't eat at all. That's our interpretation. The second one says, don't eat in a haughty fashion. And therefore, water is permitted. Therefore, as the poskim write, coffee is permitted and tea is permitted. And if a person has a headache, it's permitted and so forth. And what's the, pur- what's the purpose of that second pasuk then? To qualify. Much along the lines of what Ezra said earlier, that, says Beit Yosef, was applicable and possible because this is all rabbinic in nature to begin with, right? That's what Beit Yosef just said. Since this is the rabbis prohibiting eating beforehand, they in turn said, only if you're doing it in a haughty fashion. If it was a biblical statement, there's no tweaking it and playing with it in that fashion. Uh, That being the case, uh, not... In the scheme of things, our point is still made, but maybe it's diminished a little bit because I told you I was most excited about source number six, that not eating before prayer being biblical. Well, I told you the majority of the Rishonim read it that way. If Bet Yosef doesn't read it that way, if the Rabbi Yosef Karo doesn't read it that way, maybe not as great without getting into every one of the details. So yes, I think the latter. I think it's the Gemara. I think it's the Gemara I've tipped them off to it. The rest of them are, I mean, listen, uh, you're saying none of them are applicable today? I'm sorry, I, I, They're I, all binding according to Haram Bamin HaTorah. 
Uh, you know, Shohan Aruch, however, has the following Pesach Halacha in source number nine. It should say, my typo, Sheino Sarich Lavsik. The person began eating before Alot Hashachar, before the uh, first glimmer of the sun, uh, uh, or whatever, light in, in the sky. Uh, so two opinions, whether you need to stop or you don't need to stop. We generally speak, have this principle that if it's Stam Vyesh Omrim, when Shohan Aruch mentions one opinion, then he says, but some say it differently, Halacha Kistam, which means you should have to stop. Why is he being so stringent all of a sudden? Why is he telling me Tzarich Lahavsik? Without getting into the broad details, this became and emerged until today as a debate amongst contemporary poskim. Says Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer in source number 10, you see Shohan Aruch changed his opinion. His opinion for one reason or another in Shohan Aruch is that eating prior to prayer is a biblical prohibition. What's the proof? Why do you have to stop? Why is he so stringent? There are two opinions, whether you have to stop before when you began in the, the permitted period. Again, I began, it was two o'clock in the morning. I'm eating and now it's five o'clock in the morning. It's alot do I need to stop or not? Shohan Aruch says, some say yes, some say no. And our understanding is, yes, you have to stop. Says Rabbi Yaakov, Haim Sofer in his book, Kerem Yaakov. You see, Shohan Aruch has gone stringently on this matter. He must have shifted his opinion to accepting that lo tochlu al adam by prayer is biblically binding. Rabbi Yitzchak, I'm not getting into the particulars. It's a longer, very important conversation in my mind. Fascinating conversation, which I only got into at one point because there was a congregant who was struggling with this. Told me that he'd been eating his whole life, etc., and whatever. And so he was looking for a way in. So he wakes up very early. Anyway, that, that's how I got into this sort of conversation. I'll go a step further. Ham Ben Bashaul, the contemporary of Hacham Yosef, the former um, uh, head of uh, Yeshivat uh, Porat Yosef, he as well accepts that lahalacha. La halacha, we should be stringent in these circumstances with regards to eating before prayer because we imagine it as a biblically binding violation and prohibition. He therefore is stringent on matters such as drinking coffee with milk or drinking coffee with sugar, uh, having anything in addition to just water, coffee, or tea, he's stringent. His major force in being stringent on this matter, he makes clear in Orlis Yon Chelek Bet here in Perik Zayin Ot Zayin is because the majority opinion and certainly Harambam is of the opinion that Lotochlu al Adam, not eating prior to prayer, is biblically prohibited. Again, let's pause and take stock of what we have then. We dealt with, in the initial, at the onset of this class, Ramban's statement. It seemed somewhat innocuous. It seemed like something you could smile at and accept. Sometimes you have Peshat in the Pasuk, and the rabbis have a different interpretation. He said, but stick with the Peshat and the interpretation. We didn't fully wrap our heads around the, the severity or, or, or the, the breadth of that statement. We saw it in Maharala as well. He even gave us the picture of the tree with the roots and the branches and the, and the leaves. And then we got real about this. We found a pasuk in the Torah, which when we read it carefully, in context, told us something somewhat narrow, and then saw the rabbis broaden it in ways we didn't expect as well. It doesn't feel so much like roots and branches and leaves. It feels like roots with a tree down the block and another one a town over. And yet, the Pesach Halacha, many of these matters in the traditional senses, that these are binding 
all, not one or the other, all of these are binding to the extent that that last derasha, but not even before the prayer, might even be Shohan Aruch's opinion. It certainly is Harambam's opinion. Now, it happens to be in source number 12, Rabbi Yitzhak Yosef, the Rishon Lesion disagrees. His understanding is it's only rabbinic in nature, but it doesn't take away from the force of this issue that we're dealing with a biblically binding pasuk against its peshat, derived in several different directions. And I leave you with not a question per se, but a statement. We began the class again by discussing and realizing this paradoxical nature of halakha, that I can at once accept this is the truthful interpretation to the pasuk, while at the same time accepting that that is the truthful interpretation. But how can it be? God meant one, or didn't he? No, the argument is. God meant one and. There was one utterance from God, but I heard too. As Rani said some years ago, maybe in the first Truths of Halakha class, if you were to ask me, does it mean don't eat before prayer? Does it mean uh, don't eat while you're issuing a judgment? I would answer yes. If you would ask me, does it mean don't commit sorcery? Or does it mean it's a warning for Ben Sorero More? I would answer yes. The Truths of Halakha then has emerged yet again in this sort of biblical interpretation and biblical manifestation of singular words in the Pasuk, which have all sorts of wide-reaching implications. Yes, Is Gary. there another example where, uh, where the, it's not as cryptic and we still delve further into it and find other... In other words, this one is calling out... Sure, so... Give me something that's like really clear as day. So, so I have a good one. I don't want to get fully into it. I'm going to tell it to you, but I, I, before I tell it to you, I want to remind you, Ramban gave us two. One was the Herim Pasuk. The other one was the sons and the fathers not dying, oh, right. right? Another famous one. It's just a longer conversation. And had this been a year ago before I was told I have to finish this class quickly, I would have addressed this in the same class. It's lifnei iver lotiten michshol. Is there a biblical violation in placing a stumbling block in front of a blind person in the literal sense, or is it only figuratively interpreted as the rabbis do? Yeah, but that's also very... Fascinatingly... Uh, okay. So I mean, come on. Okay. Stumbling block. If you say so, so then we have those two. There's one or two others that come to mind, which are classes in and of themselves. But you are right, and, and I don't think that takes away from the strength of this conversation or, or the breadth of this conversation. The words in Torah Shebikhtav are often, maybe not often, uh, maybe not always, but are often cryptic to the extent that I could make several claims to interpreting it. The, the, the argument of this, however, is that they're not just claims to interpreting it. They are verified, truthful interpretations. Yes, maybe because a purposeful prophetic wording was placed there in, in, in situation so that we could and would interpret well, what, what it. What about the opposite words? Completely clear, 100% of what the words are saying, like ben sorero morer, you know, you kill, and then... They go the total opposite way and right. then negate the whole, it's, the whole thing. It's an important conversation. Not exactly this, but yeah, yeah. No, I, understood. You'll, I, I do. Here it is. It's straight out. I do. It, an important conversation to be had in terms of that circumstance. Here, I don't know that we're per se skewing it. I do know that we're interpreting it differently. But I understand exactly what you're saying by that. And that's an important, larger conversation, which 
in Masechet Sanhedrin we had, but maybe we should do it in, in, in one of these class series. I'll just conclude, though, however, with the statement of Rabbi Eliyahu ben Amozeg. Uh, Rabbi Eliyahu ben Amozeg was an important Italian rabbi who lived in the 19th century. I think he died in 1900. He was a scholar in many ways. He knew several languages. He knew Jewish mysticism, but he knew philosophy as well. He looked consistently and constantly to square philosophy and theology with one another. He was a humanist in, a, in, in every sense of the word and wrote about it. I mean, he was a, just a fascinating, absolutely brilliant person. And some of his books have just been, to the best of my knowledge, for the first time reprinted. What's that? What, not well known at, at, at all for good reasons. Very a, a universalist in that respect. Uh, in his book Em La Mikra, which was again just reprinted, just uh, done finally, maybe several months ago. I, I have it here together with me in Jersey. Thankfully, I brought it. I I set it as a mission to learn as much as it as, as of it as I can, because not so well known, but becoming more popular. Regardless, his statement is with regards to this matter. So again, keep in mind an absolutely. Brilliant brilliant person, I'm skipping some of the content, but he was so well read that he's quoting Homer in this context and others, much of which I cut out of this, to explain from first-hand accounts and interpretations and, and, and tellings and narratives what it meant once upon a time. This is the way of the idolaters of old. They used to gather together on the mountains. They would dig a ditch they, or some sort of furrow. They would slaughter an animal and pour its blood in there. They would then swear to the dead animal, or to a dead person or being, because they wanted to inquire and to request from it. Visit Ta'am, says Abed uh, Mosek, as a matter of fact, he says, that's why in the Septuagint, the Septuagint, of course, is Targum HaShiv'im, some several 2,000 plus years ago in Greek interpretation to the Torah, he says their, their copying of this Pasuk is not Lo Tochlu Al Hadam, but rather Lo Tochlu Al Heharim. Which is very funny. Truth is, you'll find it. Uh, Moshe Maimon showed me this. I think that you find it in Targum Yerushalmi. I think as well the Targum that you find on the in the Mikraot Gedolot. I think it says the same thing. What does it mean on the mountains? I thought it says on the blood. The mountains and the blood is the same thing. This was a ritual practice of these uh, of these idolaters. There's an enigmatic, mysterious pasuk in Yehaskel. Didn't eat in the mountains. What do you mean? Didn't eat in the mountains. Didn't commit idolatry. Gabi, fascinatingly, his suggestion, Ben Amoseg, is that the Hachamim knew this. They were aware of the Peshat. How so? There's a Mishnah in Masechet Chulin which says you're not allowed to be shohet betocha kelim velo letocha guma. The Mishnah says you're not allowed to slaughter into basins or into furrows. And the interpretation is because that's the ways of the idolaters. Although, to the best of my knowledge, the Gemara does not attribute it to this Pasuk, says Ben Amoseg. Where do you think they're getting it from? They're getting it from Lotochlu al Adam. They were aware of this. This is also Nifsak la Halacha. Pause for a second. Back to the conversation we've been having throughout, Gabby. I, I saved this on purpose for last. I've, initially, this was one of the first sources. It was perfectly placed over here. Whereas we maybe assumed throughout 
that the Chachamim just didn't have a contextual analysis. They weren't able to put themselves in the place of the Torah's giving and understand what it meant in Peshat. His suggestion is not only were they able to, they did. It's in Harambam's Mishneh Torah. I did read just yesterday, just last night as I was preparing this, I found an article uh, online on this whole topic. And his claim is Harambam has no mention of the Peshat Lo Tochlu Al Adam. I don't believe it's so. He has Peshat Lo Tochlu Al Adam. So add to it, we have five in Masechet Sanhedrin, number six in Masechet Berachot, which we're arguing the majority view is that Min HaTorah, and the Peshat. How, how could this be? Which one is it? Is it that or is it this? There must be one interpretation. That you and I, when I speak and I say something, I only mean one thing, right? When it's God who's speaking, I can hear I can hear too. When I talk about halacha, when I talk about words of prophecy from God himself transmitted to human beings, by definition, a simplistic singular truth will be limiting the scope of an infinite being. And in turn, the truths of halacha then, number seven concludes with this point, the way we began, when there's a pasuk in the Torah which can and should be read based on its context, we'll call that peshat, and the interpretation binding as it is over here, that doesn't in turn preclude several, even one, two, over here, six other interpretations which we traditionally accept all as binding, as truthful and biblically given. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.